You're listening to Malka Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, sir, people, we are joined by our very own uh, Professor Andre Duvenaga from the Northwest uh, Universities, and he's uh, very popular when it comes to uh, media and all the houses uh, or dif- different platforms. I look forward to his uh, comments and so forth. Uh, Prof, how are you doing? Shafat, I am fine, back from holidays, so things are coming slowly back to normal, and it's a difficult normal, it's a a bit of an abnormal, given all the set of circumstances, changes on many levels, but I'm ready to talk to you, sir. Yes, sir, Prof, what we want to talk about is, you know, perhaps we talk about our privacy, you know, I want to take you way back yesteryear, if you and I had to have a conversation, we knew each other's background, uh, we knew our social standings and so forth. But fast forwarding, Prof, and you look at the uh, social media platforms, you look at Twitter, you look at Facebook. I mean, anyone and everyone, you don't even know who's who in the zoo, but they all are, you know, they have an opinion. Uh, they, they don't even respect people of standing. And it just takes one comment uh, to destroy people who had, you know, a credible reputation and so forth. In other words, uh, Prof, um, social media has brought in perhaps the bullies and has given people that, you know, do not even have a, you know, a sound education to be uh, critical of people that make a difference. What's your thoughts on that, uh, Prof? Well, uh, I think uh, the age we are living in, communication and information, redefined it as a new power base. And it's a a power base with huge, huge influence. And the influence is of such a nature, as you mentioned, that it can hold a person from zero to nothing to, 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 to a top position. And it's interesting that many senior politicians have strong media affiliations or are in the world of arts and drama. That is because they are they have a public profile. But the opposite is also true. You can destroy and distract a person's reputation to the level that it is not possible to reconstitute it in any way. And yes, there are forces at work. Some of them are not following the ethics, proper ethics. I think a big problem is the lack of control over the social media. But then again, you have the problem who will control the people who control the system because it's all about power and power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely, to quote a famous Englishman. Yeah, Prof, and uh, you find that uh, the insurrection that took place uh, last year in July, I mean, you found that the social media or the WhatsApp played a vital role in, uh, you know, the communication about what was going on. And it was uh, also said that uh, many ANC officials were complicit in what had happened and that uh, the kingpin of the whole uh, insurrection hasn't been brought to book because he's of a very high, high profile. Your thoughts, uh, Prof? Well, Shafat, yes. Uh, in a way, I was part of that social media exercise, not part of the insurrection, but in many ways, uh, I was one of the persons who predicted that 
we are going to see higher levels of instability, that the process is building in KZN and other parts of our country. And that was part of an ongoing process in the media, as it is at the moment. But it's also through the side you mentioned that the social media was used by people that are uh, part of that insurrection and they organize and they mobilize by making use of media grouping, social media platforms, etc. And Shafat, what is concerning at the moment is that the same type of information uh, I have received about May, June, July last year is what I'm picking up at the moment, maybe even more serious than was the case during the months before the insurrection took place. And that must be an area of concern. But the big problem is, when is news news and the real news? When is it fake news? When are people openly speculating about the topic? When is a person misinformed about the situation? All of this is becoming one big area of grade. It's not possible to differentiate between, let's say, right and wrong, black or white, or whatever the case or criterion may be. Prof, you know, you make a good uh, point there indeed, and we don't know what is real news, what is fake news, because uh, these people do have uh, the guts uh, to put themselves out in the social media. And, you know, recently we saw a uh, clip of, by uh, foreigners uh, claiming that, you know what, we're not going to sit back and take uh, uh, things lying down. We're going to kill. We, uh, we are armed. We have so many cars. We have so many AK-47s. Uh, they, they even tell you from which part of the border it came through and so forth. I mean, I feel that is like a, uh, perhaps, a, uh, you know, a false flag uh, operation or something like, uh, you know, maybe a government intelligentsia trying to bait foreigners. And, you know, it says, give us your link and uh, we will get in touch with you. That sounds like a bait, uh, Prof. How do you read that? Well, Shafat, there's no doubt that the intelligence world is also working with uh, the social media. In fact, one of my PhD students completed a PhD study on social media intelligence. They call it Sockment. And yes, they have strategies. They are putting plans in place. And they are seeing the social media as one of the most important instruments to control and to, to, to take notice of. So yes, it is definitely there. It is possible that they can put it that way. And that is what I mentioned to you earlier, that the, the big problem between, let's say, uh, fake news and what is real news and what is a real strategy and what is a fake strategy. It is not always possible to differentiate among what people are doing. But to come back to your baseline argument, and there I am prepared to, to discuss this in an academic way, what we are looking at in South Africa at the moment is that law and order, 
is falling apart. The state that we know as a state is no more a state in the functional sense of the word. Now you are getting huge power bases that are developing outside the framework of the state. Sometimes in competition, you are getting corrupt leadership taking over of what is left of state institutions. You get warlords that are functioning. You get organized crime. Uh, and we have seen some of these parallels uh, with the decline of the old Soviet Union and the way the mafias positioned them with regard to power in many ways. So I think power play is part of the bigger game of change. And we are now into this. And my big concern is that I am not that sure that the forces that is at work for the type of values I would like to see, and that is also the values entrenched in the Constitution, that that values are dominant and prominent. Rather, I think we are looking at the dark side of our politics. We have seen that with the shootings at the Devons. We have seen that with the sabotage at ESCOM. We have seen that with uh, the attacks on trucks and many other things. We have seen that with criminal syndicates operate in the open. And as you have mentioned, these people are not brought to book. That it doesn't happen. That in some cases, in the insurrection, in KZN, the police either didn't happen or sometimes even supported the looting people, providing them with logistics, etc. I think it is absolutely true that the ANC is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, crime syndicate in the history of South Africa. Prof, you're making a lot of valid points there indeed, and I know we also knew that it felt as if the citizens were telling, uh, you know, uh, during the time of the insurrection uh, last year, that uh, it seemed as if the government was uh, protecting the looters, and also, you know, the law enforcement were going for people that were defending the suburbs and telling them, no, 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 uh, take away your roadblocks and uh, put away your firearms. And you also knew that uh, a few security companies had their firearms confiscated and, you know, uh, like making things open and clear that we are not with you, but we are with the looters. And this was a signal that was sent, uh, you know, very uh, vociferously across the KZN. And then uh, you found that Cyril Ramaphosa, when they, uh, this, uh, you know, looting was taking place and insurrection, he said nothing about it. A few days later, he comes out and what he does, Prof, he thanks the people. He says, if it wasn't for you who protected uh, the, uh, your homes and this and that, uh, democracy would have been uh, down the drain in this country. Your, your take on that, Ralph? Well, uh, my take on it, to start with, I can make a number of points, is that Ramaphosa is not in control of the country. He is the absent president. He's trying to drive the car from a backseat position, maybe even further back than a backseat. There are other forces dominant. He is not providing leadership. He is reacting. 
reacting to situations as he is probably going to react to the energy crisis in a few days' time. And I'm 100% sure there will be no fundamental changes because the problem is political in nature. It's about political interest. It is said that some of his family is involved in this, Patrice Mosepi, and uh, I think another influential role player in this regard is Benny Mantash. He need him for purposes of winning the election towards the end of the year. So I'm not expecting strong decisions. And secondly, our structures are not functioning, Shafat. And where they are functioning, they are functioning in another mold. And that is what Course Malone, amongst others, tried to say we have the formal constitution and then we have a constitution with a small letter C. That is the real functional thing. And that is what the cadres are driven. That was what is giving us uh, state capture, etc., etc. And my honest take on it is that Ramaphosa doesn't have the power to deal with this. And the moment he touched on Zondo and the implications of this for the political elite leads to strong reaction, violence, etc. I'm not 100% sure, but some of the stories we are hearing here, and again it is maybe fake news, but that uh, the, the, the shootings in the taverns has been done by people from KZN. I'm not saying that is the truth, but the fact of the matter is these things are happening. To read these things outside of a criminal context will be wrong. But I think it's going to a higher level than a criminal level alone. I think within the criminal context, there are also political links. And that is defining the state as a corrupt state, as a state that is really falling apart. And the natural reaction, Shafat, their own environment of safety and security. If you uh, look at the Maslow hierarchy of needs, he will tell you that the first need is safety and security. And after that, other needs may be important, like food and so on and so on. But you need safety, security, order, structure. At the moment, that is absent. And many people are creating this, some with good intent, others with bad intent. And we have seen the incident between the Minister of Police and Ian Cameron. And I think Ian Cameron was on the right side and the Minister of Police on the wrong side. And that, again, is sending a message of concern to my environment about the state of affairs in the country, and more specifically, when it comes to the security forces of our country, with specific reference to the police in this case. As a professor, you know, specializing in political science, uh, Prof, uh, what do you make of uh, the Americans having a military drill with the South African National Defense Force? And secondly, uh, you know, media says uh, there's over 10,000 American troops in South Africa. What's your thoughts? Well, uh, Shafat, again, uh, I didn't hear about this information. I'm not 100% sure about the truth of this information. But let's take it uh, 
as a point of departure, let's presuppose it is uh, factually correct. There's no doubt that the Americans has a huge interest in what is going on in South Africa. We know that they had strong links with Botswana. We know that South Africa is in trouble when it comes to big financial institutions like the IMF, like the World Bank, dominated by specifically the Americans, also other institutions, but the Americans are prominent in this regard. So yes, it is possible. We cannot exclude the possibility. So can I also not exclude the possibility that the presence of American influence in South Africa will be used by other groupings to further their own political goals one side or another. There are many people arguing at the moment that South Africa is yet again in negotiations about building nuclear plants and this bring the Russians into play yet again. So this is a very complicated picture. We are not always sure what is accurate and what is inaccurate. And to, to stress this point further, South Africa's relationships with states in terms of the world conflict referring to the Russians versus the Ukraine is also not clear. On the one side, we are supporting the Russians and there was clear indications of support for the Russians coming from the ANC structures and other institutions of, of government. And then on the other side, Cyril uh, Ramaphosa is attending a meeting of the G7 group who is pro-anti-Russian in many ways. So I think in uh, South Africa's position internationally is not clear. We try to get the benefit of both worlds and I am afraid that this is not going to work. I know that Biden put huge pressure on South Africa and the South African president, but so did the Russians. And that is part of power politics that is normal to the world environment. Yes, sir, Prof, you talk about power politics. And we know that $24 billion in claims was paid by Sassria after the 2021, uh, you know, uh, unrest, Prof. And the South African Special Risk Insurance uh, has paid, as I said, $24 billion in claims relating to last year's unrest. The payout represents 80% of all claims lodged over the state-owned insurance company since uh, July. Uh, unrest. Uh, Prof, you know, you're looking at the stealing and uh, with all the uh, corruption that's uh, in, uh, rife in this country. Did they really pay, about, uh, pay out that amount? And how much of that amount uh, could have been uh, stolen, Prof? Well, Shafat, uh, we have seen what happened to COVID funds. We have seen what is happening to, to money on literally all levels of government, local, provincial, and national. We have seen the, the, the amounts involved in the, the evidence before the Zondo Commission in terms of state capture, the whole Sasa thing, ESCOM, we can just mention him. Uh, I think it is highly possible that it may be misused for the one or the other purpose. And that is the strategy of some of these forces 
it is basically a sophisticated plan of looting. You are looting and you're getting the benefits and we claim that back. Because any system that is providing assurance work with the premise that let's say of the 100% of the interests they are assured, uh, 10% may get into problem and they need to cater for the 10%. But when the problem is 90%, then the institution is in trouble and I understand that Sasriya uh, a day or two back said that they won't be possible to provide assurance and the tariffs are on the increase. My understanding is that, that there are huge tariff increases as a result of the dire situation and as a result of fears that what happened during July last year in KZN and other parts of the country may repeat itself again. You know, there's a clip that you sent me, Prof, Prof, was about that Indian gentleman. And, you know, he said many things about uh, the insurrection and so forth. But in the end, he says, you know what? There's one kingpin in this, and that's uh, Jacob Zuma. Come on, Cyril Ramaphosa, go and sit with uh, Jacob Zuma and thrash the whole thing out. Come on, we can't take another insurrection. Uh, How do you read that, Prof? Well, uh, Shafat, yes, uh, my reading on that is, is, is relatively simple. If Ramaphosa is doing that, that will mean the end of the Zondo Commission. And it may mean the end of his aspirations of becoming president of the country. And this may be a win for Zuma, and it will be the end of what we have to come to know as our constitutional democracy. Uh, and that, to me, will say that power politics and the forces of evil has won. If you want to achieve something, go outside the law and obtain that with brute power. And to me, that is going against the core basis, not even of democracy, but of what we know as a state, not to talk even about a civilized form of state. Prof, how do you react to people that say, you know, the, the uh, blackout and the uh, uh, bringing down uh, of ESCOM and all the water, sanitation, all these uh, essential services is being done deliberately so that a new world order will be ushered in where, you know, electricity and uh, clean energy comes in and all the prices will be controlled and controlled by one governing body. It's like, uh, you know, America will uh, dictate and uh, these are maybe, some will say, conspiracy theories. But if you look at the situation, uh, you know, power outages and uh, fuel crisis, it's hitting the world one at, at, at one and the same time, uh, Prof. Uh, your reaction? Uh, but, uh, I will try, uh, let's first put it this way. This is where the speculation, this is the level of debate, that is the level of conversation, Uh, People cannot explain these things, and change, especially violent change, is one of the most unpredictable things you can try to analyze, and we are in a phase of more or less violent forms of change. We are busy in the process of creating a new world order. There's no doubt about it. But looking specifically at ESCO, looking at Transnet, Looking at 
what is happening. I won't try to explain that from a world order, Illuminati type of perspective. I think there is, without any doubt, deliberate and planned attempts to disrupt the provision of electricity, the functioning of the state. But I think it has more to do with forces that are working from within the state and maybe from within the ruling party. That forces from the outside may try to benefit from this. This may be the case, and maybe a good example of this is when the Western world put sanctions against the Russians, the Indian government bought the oil to sell it on the markets for a higher price. So, uh, as we say in Afrikaans, the insidut is the undersubruit, the one benefit from where the other one lost. So, I think that may be the case, but the real explanation, I think, is within South Africa, or at least 80%, of that and i will ascribe this to the ruling party and uh, the dynamics for political survival specifically of the group they refer to themselves as the ret group i refer to themselves as the coalition of the corrupt not including the the anc alone but also forces within the eff the blf and institutions of that nature yeah, Prof, and we also know that, uh, God forbid, uh, this uh, next insurrection that will take place or will take place, and uh, we hope and pray it doesn't take place. But if it takes place, and they say, uh, according to sources and uh, statistics done, the only group that is uh, well-prepared, well-armed, is the uh, uh, Mensa. They have uh, their stocks in places, uh, they have the uh, electricity, or they got the solar power, they got the waters, they got the Jojo tanks, and they got the boreholes and so forth. They are ready, Prof, and uh, the other groups uh, will be found lagging. Your thoughts? Yes, uh, Shafat. Uh, I think it is true that the white population group may be better prepared than most other categories of society. If they are completely ready for this, I won't put it on that level. I think there are still a lot of dangers, a lot of risks, but people are preparing themselves. Uh, people are uh, trying to, in some way or another, develop contingency plans. I'm thinking about a group calling themselves the Seidlanders, and they are working with this plan for the past, I think it's about five to 10 years now, where they believe that the situation will deteriorate to the extent that uh, an emergency plan, a contingency plan will be necessary. Yes, there are people preparing for food, for water, for their own electricity, for their safety at homes. Uh, I think some people will also go the way of preparing themselves in a more security uh, sense in terms of safety, uh, joining specifically uh, groups in their direct areas, Buurtwacht, as we say in Afrikaans, but also linking them to security firms that are functioning. I can assure you in my environment, in my area, 
there the security people are functioning throughout the night on a constant basis. If you run into trouble, you can easily make contact with these people. They are the visible people. I think in that sense, the white community is better off. But Shafat, uh, I think that should be a call for all other groups to be very, very careful. And uh, I think the incident of uh, a year ago, but also had the experience, I think it was in the late 40s, where a similar type of incident happened. So there's also a bit of history to it. And as George Hegel, the well-known German philosopher, said, the only lesson we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Maybe it is time that we learn from history that this is the African continent. It put unique challenges before us. And if we would like to survive, we must address these challenges. If you would like to survive, you need to plan in a proper way. I think that's a huge part of the about 300 years of Afrikaner history in South Africa. And this brought us to the point where we need to be careful. We know we need to be careful if we want to survive as a community. And I think you are right that many groupings in South Africa, black, Indian, maybe even white communities in a way, can benefit from that experience. And I think maybe... In a worldwide context, where the world is at turmoil at the moment, they can also learn a lesson or two from the bigger Afrikaner history. Yeah, Prof, you referred to the 1949 riots uh, that took place uh, in KZN, and uh, I think it even uh, spilled out into Transvaal and so forth. I'm not too sure. But it is said uh, that, uh, you know, when uh, those, uh, uh, you know, the burning of Indians and all that was taking place, uh, the Indians are far, are far back. They had the Gurkhas and so forth uh, that came. And there was an Indian Navy ship that happened to be docked in the Durban Harbour. And it, uh, they say if it was not for the Navy, uh, the Indian Navy, the Indians would have been wiped out. And uh, they said that the government of the time did nothing to stop uh, you know, the uh, Zulus from going for the Indians. How true was that, Prof? Shafat, I don't know the specific history. Uh, what I can tell you at that point in time, there was a major government change. It was the end of the Jan Smits era, and it was the beginning of what come to known as the apartheid government under Daniel Francois Malan. So it was a period of change, and I know that the security forces at that point in time, was still under the management of people loyal to the South African party, the SAPA as we call them. So I'm not sure what was the security situation, what was their capacity. But from what I come to know about our history, uh, in a very general sense, I don't think they would just have allowed it to, uh, to continue unabated. I think they would have stopped that. Maybe there was international pressure, maybe there were capacity uh, problems, but uh, I don't think 
And that was not the British style of doing things. Because at that point in time, the commandment of the, the security forces was very British via Smiths and the South African Party. Uh, that was not their style. That was also not their colonial approach. That was still prominent during that times. So I would be careful to say that they will lay back and see how groups were killed. They will act, but I believe there were capacity problems. Uh, and sometimes we had this thing of spontaneous violence. And some people are predicting this for South Africa at the moment. You cannot predict where things will happen. And sometimes when the police forces react, then it is too late. But yes, it was an unforeseen set of circumstances. It was very contrary to the better relationships and the improved relationships that later developed between uh, the Indian community and the ANC, ending up in the Freedom Charter, in the Ravonia trial, etc., etc. So I think it's a bit more complicated than just a simple answer, but that there were probably uh, mistakes made. I think that is absolutely so, that there were probably certain political ideology influencing decisions that may be the case, but that is as far as I can analyze it. Uh, it's a brilliant analysis, Prophet. And also, you opened up my mind uh, to Smuts uh, being, you know, more of a Britisher uh, than a Buro, because he was uh, very instrumentally, was uh, very close to them. And also, you know, uh, you look at Smuts and uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Many say that Mahatma Gandhi was a British stooge. I don't know, Prof, your reaction. Shafat, we don't know. Just this morning, people sent me information from WikiLeaks. And I will send some of this information to you. It is absolutely unbelievable, if it's, if it's not fake news, that this person is connected to the CIA, this person here, this person there. At the end of the day, all I can say is, uh, for me, this is speculation until I can have full proof, which most probably I never will have. One of the claims made, for example, in the WikiLeaks thing is that Tom Beke was arrested for a crime related to uh, the possession of uh, uh, cocaine, something like that, that type of thing. And there were other accusations that are in a way connecting to the story of Bird Island, Infra touching on influential politicians, influencing Sarul Ramaphosa, etc., etc. So I am not 100% sure what is true in these contexts. And I think in many ways in my world, beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. You see what you would like to see and what you prefer to see and what makes sense in your world and your concept. And you accept that as your truth. And maybe proof is lying with the individual and not in the collective. Who knows? 
Well, Prof, you know, also talking about capturing people and uh, getting to, uh, to serve uh, your purpose. I mean, you look at uh, Nelson Mandela, many are of the opinion uh, that he was only released uh, when he had to uh, sign certain uh, accords uh, where he had to let Anglo-American still uh, rule the roost of this country. And uh, then it makes one uh, think, uh, you know, if this country is going to get into civil war, it's such a, a powerful and a rich country. Will Anglo-American and other conglomerates allow this to happen to South Africa? And who wins in a situation like this when South Africa is burned to its cinders and perhaps loses a majority of its population uh, due to infighting, factionalism, racism, and so forth? What happens then, Prof? Well, my starting point will be that any situation where there's violence, where there's... Uh, the destruction of uh, property and uh, what is going with this cannot contribute to development in India. In that sense, stability, security, that what is currently absent in South is a very important prerequisite for development, for growth, for higher living standards, whatever you would like to add to this. What is interesting is that many of these big groups, these big conglomerates, have left South Africa. Anglo-Americans sold the majority of its mines. I understand their last mine, I think, was sold or is in the process uh, uh, during the last year or so. So capital are flowing out of this country. I think the beers are out of the country already. Uh, Sasol took a lot of their money in foreign investment, not investing in South Africa anymore. So I think this is happening in, in many ways. And uh, at the end of the day, Shafat, what we are looking at is a country that with its own situation developing is creating a set of self-made sanctions that is prohibited economic development, financial inflow, and growth in this country. I don't think there is some master plan somewhere where one person knows precisely what to do to come to certain outcomes. My take on it is that there are actors playing roles, see how they can benefit themselves, and if there's no beneficiation, then they took what they have outside and they invest in another area. I think that is the rule or one of the most important rules of an economy and also the world economy. Prof, how is Zimbabwe, uh, you know, benefiting with the unrest in South Africa with, the, you know, disinvestment? I believe, uh, you know, I read about uh, Oppenheimer. Uh, you know, in, in, in Zimbabwe, he's got this uh, big uh, farm which has uh, so many, uh, you know, gold and diamond and so forth. Uh, are they investing in uh, the uh, SEDAC the region? Well, uh, you know, moving out of South Africa, they even threatened to take uh, Toyota away from here and go and plant it in Zimbabwe. Prof? Well, I don't know about Toyota in Zimbabwe. I heard that they would like to take Toyota to Botswana, but... Uh 
we are not always sure when things are presented correctly or, or incorrectly. So far, when it comes to Zimbabwe, my bottom line is that basically the country imploded, but it's such a rich country that it can function on a minimum level and still, in a way, provide for its people. But uh, it's all about the natural resources. There's high levels of exploitation going on. It is a country that is falling apart. The difference with South Africa is that uh, other as, as Zimbabwe, that is primarily focusing on, let's say, raw materials and agriculture, South Africa has a very sophisticated, well-developed financial and tertiary economy and that is making the situation a lot more risky for uh, South Africans in comparison to Zimbabwe and at the moment with the poor management with the high levels of corruption it's just making sense that people will invest in other parts we know that the number of uh, crises uh, reach KZN, that was not only the insurrection, but also the floods. So the circumstances are difficult. Uh, I've seen that floods when I drove to Midmar, and it was huge. I think the impact of the floods may be just as big as the insurrection. But in natural economic terms, people will see this as a risky environment. They are not prepared to invest in that environment, and they will take it to another area. And it's interesting that there are areas in Africa that are developing a lot. I think uh, the best example in our direct environment is Angola, changes in countries like uh, uh, Zambia, and also in a place or a country like uh, uh, Rwanda, and to a certain extent, Burundi. So yes, there are positive things going on, but you need a certain form of stability, you need to be open for investment, you need to manage your things in another way, and our whole ideology, our management structure, our ethics, our moral basis, all is falling apart at the moment. Prof, you were on a boss, Barad. I mean, you've been talking to businessmen, you've been talking to farmers, you've been talking to academics, you've been talking to everyone, whomever you met, and even your shopkeepers and where you shop, uh, people giving you information all over. Now, if you happen to get all these uh, different factions of uh, South Africa or the different leaders of different parties together, what would you tell them, Prof? Well, Shafat, what I'm telling you, and I did that a week ago in Midmar, is that we are facing a very challenging situation, that we are into a framework of institutional and political decay, and our survival is lying within the creation of parallel structures to the state, not because we want to create alternatives, but because we have no other choice, this is already happening, and communities should be looking after themselves, see how they can provide what is necessary in difficult times. So in a nutshell, that is my argument. I'm also telling them it is important to build bridges 
between and among communities. I don't think we need to use racial criteria. I think we can build bridges to all South Africans and bring them into a certain framework because the troubles are very much the same for all South Africans. And I honestly tell them that we cannot continue with the current government, with its current ideology, its current policy, and the way it is treating its citizens in so many ways. In that sense, we need the fundamental reform of South African, the political dispensation, the economic order, as well as the social structure of society. Prof, it's always said that, you know, religion uh, unites communities, uh, puts uh, people together, and uh, brings uh, decorum and refined disposition. And it seems as if, you know, religion is not respected in uh, this country, and, uh, you know, even our uh, religious leaders. Uh, could you put the blame on them failing the people, uh, not doing uh, enough, or not being powerful enough uh, to get the influence of a divine decree ruling over all the, you know, people say that uh, evil is so... Uh, apparent and so uh, out of control in these times. Uh, Prof, your thoughts? Uh, first, uh, Shafat, I think it's a bit of a myth to argue that religion will unite people. <laughs> I think under the flag of religion, there will probably more fighting and more war than any other determinant in history. So when it comes to religion, I'm always very, very careful. But if you talk about the execution, the practical execution of the underlying values of most religions, you will find a common base of things. And if we go and execute that in a proper way, and that is where I will put people like Mahatma Gandhi, like Mother Teresa, and there are many others. Some will put Nelson Mandela into that category as well. I, I have my own qualifications in this regard. But there are people operating on a sound set of values, uh, and many of that values are firmly entrenched in our Constitution. And that values, in terms of execution, is completely absent. I don't think we need necessarily to rewrite our constitution, but we need to execute it in such a way that people can benefit from it and that the poor can see some light and that the rich can also become involved in upliftment. At the moment, we are creating what I call a racial oligarchy where people are fighting for their own survival. And in many cases, unfortunately, it's on basis of race, culture, and identity. In that sense, the whole idea of a rainbow nation has basically completely failed. And at the moment, it seems as if it's everyone for him or herself, and uh, the devil took the one at the back, and we try to survive as long as we can. And we shouldn't live in a Darwinist, Hobbesian world. Rather, we should try to create 
an environment that is conducive for development, that is conducive for human rights, that is really de-racial in many ways, where there's room for different identities and that the conflict among identities are managed in proper ways. I think just taking this will uh, take us forward a long way and we are currently far away from that. I have made the point that I am very, very much concerned about the nature of race relations within South Africa. With today, we have more racially defined legislation than we had in the period before 1994. Prof, you talk about that race relationship. You know, you notice the people taking the knee in the UK and the USA. But uh, there you find in the USA... Uh, you know, young, uh, you know, Caucasian men are going around uh, killing uh, black men and, uh, you know, women and children uh, with impunity. I mean, they, they just go and uh, they, they do like this. And, and, and then when you read or when you see snippets on the media, they say if a black person had done that, they would have shot him. But uh, when a white person uh, does it in America, uh, you know, he's arrested very gently. Uh, they don't shoot him. They say, oh, no, he's uh, mentally uh, deranged and all this. Uh, people are observing this. Is the world, you know, really uh, ruled, by, uh, ruled by supremacist, uh, Prof? Shafat, yes. I think, and now I'm going back to political theory, there's always elites that will control an environment. And um, I think the set of values the elites use may differ. And their conduct and or misconduct may be different. You make use of the example of the U.S. and I agree because there are certain power structures in play, which is probably to the advantage of, of white people in the United States of America. But the opposite is true in South Africa at the moment. If a black person sings something like kill the boer, kill the farmer, then nothing happened. But if a white person is referring to a black person by using certain words or certain names, he will immediately end up in jail. So it's depending on the value system, and the value system is dependent on the power basis within society and how elites are defining this in some way and this will differ from one context to the other but what is a reality of the world we are living is that identity politics however defined is playing a more and more important role in our world today and to me that is a manifestation or a symptom of fundamental change the moment you experience change and also fundamental change, you are going back to your roots. You are going back to where you know you have got security in the past. And this, in most case, cases, is the one or the other form of identity. It may be a religious identity. It may be a cultural identity, it may be a racial identity, it may be a gender identity, 
whatever it may be, but people are resorting to identity politics. That is a world phenomenon at the moment, and it was also prominent in South Africa, and to me, one of the main features of the elections of 2019 and 2021, and I believe it's going to be even more the case uh, when and if we will have an election in 2024. Prof, absolutely uh, good being in your company and uh, lots of information coming through. We really value that, Prof. Are your parting words? Well, Shafat, I think we are in difficult times in South Africa. And if we can identify some of these sound religious principles uh, that we have mentioned throughout the conversation, and that is also entrenched in the Constitution, and we took it out uh, to all South Africans and implemented in a proper way. We can help to construct a better society for all South Africans. Thank you very much, Prof. Your expertise always appreciated. Uh, have a blessed uh, time ahead. We'll talk to you soon, Prof. Thank you very much, Shafat. Yes, sir, the situation of uh, social uh, bullying and uh, looking at the different types of uh, social media that are coming through, uh, it is important for us to keep an eye on uh, if our children are getting involved. And, you know, you must get to know the emotional uh, stress and uh, what they go through when they're exposed uh, to uh, maybe, uh, you know, those that are exploiting uh, young children and all the things like that. And, you know, the cyber crime besides all that's coming through. And uh, as the point we made, uh, that there's absolutely no respect for individuals. Uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, you don't even know the type of person that uh, you are talking to in the other end. And you get these uh, faceless keyboard warriors. And, you know, they have uh, uh, time on their hands just to go and uh, cause, uh, you know, seeds of discords among people. So uh, if uh, you can keep away from uh, platforms like that, keep away because it will save you from many things but uh, there are certain individuals that use it for you know dawa purposes and so forth well uh, good luck to you and uh, yeah, the, you know maybe you are blessed for that but if you can keep away from these things and keep tabs on what's going on and then you know there are different uh, spy agencies uh, that are listening to you what you are doing and you know you notice that uh, they'll get to know your preferences what you like what you dislike and they are always feeding you all the information not information that will get you spiritually connected, but with information that takes you further and further away from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and thereby compromising your akhirah. So inshallah, try and focus on things uh, that will get you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that will get you, uh, you know, spiritually boosted instead of these things that uh, will uh, physically sap you, will drain you, will cause mayhem in your health and also your thinking pattern all goes haywire because you're addicted to a thing called like uh, social media, the Twitter, the Facebook, the Instagram. Uh, just name it and you've got all these things coming through and uh, some people, they can't even leave home without, uh, you know, without the, these uh, platforms. They are looking at it 24-7. You see people walking around, you know, looking into the phones 24-7. People driving and looking at the phones and nothing's been done about that and wherever you are uh, people always are looking at uh, this uh, thing called the hell phone yeah this is uh, some call it the cell phone the hell phone well 
Mashallah, it was uh, great uh, being in your company uh, this evening. Uh, thank you, uh, Lokalo, for uh, brilliant engineering as usual. From the team and I, till we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.